So this section of Talmud that we're studying is coming from Tractate Sanhedrin, which is interesting. I'm going to show you... Well, okay, this is one edition of the Talmud. It's uh, Rabbi Steinzaltz's translation. He actually just passed away not so long ago. Um, Rabbi Steinzaltz translated the entire Talmud into English. And this edition has both the original and the English in a very, uh, very nice way. So this translation that we're using is coming from Rabbi Steinzaltz's edition of the Talmud, Tratit Sanhedrin. So Sanhedrin, the word Sanhedrin means court. It specifically refers to the high Jewish court in ancient Israel. So if you talk about a Talmudic tractate that is all about like legal stuff, it's Sanhedrin. I mean, Sanhedrin is like the most legal. It's literally the tractate about the courts. So it's very legalistic. But it also, as if you've studied Talmud, you know that the Talmud could very quickly veer off into other sorts of conversations. And this one talks about the power of Torah and the importance of Torah study. So let's, we're going to do it together. You all have the, the handouts in front of you, the sheet in front of you. So let's jump in. We start with a quote from Rabbi Akiva, the great the great uh, Mishnaic and Talmudic scholar Rabbi Akiva, who I should mention uh, biographically, Rabbi Akiva did not know how to read Hebrew until the age of 40. So he was completely unlearned in Torah and Judaism. He had no formal Jewish education until the age of 40. And then he became one of the, and ultimately he became one of the greatest scholars of all time. And the message, of course, of that is, that little anecdote is, it's never too late to start studying Torah and to, be, and to be an accomplished scholar. So that's just as an aside. Let's begin. Rabbi Akiva says, by the way, you know the story that, that kind of got him motivated. First of all, his wife, Rachel, was like really, really a big part of it. She, she married him and she said, I believe in you that you can become a Torah scholar. Because her father was, was upset that she was marrying like a simple shepherd. So she's like, no, I see potential in him, whatever. But she believed in him. And then one day he was walking on the side of, he was walking on the road, and he sees on the side of the road, there's like a stone, and the stone has a hole in it. And he's like, that's so weird. Stones don't have holes in it. And then he realizes there was something dripping, drop after drop after drop on the stone, and it bore, th those drops bore a hole. And he said to himself, if water, which is soft, can make a hole into a rock, which is hard, then Torah can make an imprint in my brain. <laughs> so he said, if that can happen, then, then my head, which I, which, because he thought that he just couldn't learn. His head wasn't for it. He's like, if water can do that to a stone, that's it. So he jumped in. He studied Torah. He, he went to yeshiva for years, you know, at, a, at, a, at an older age. And he became, again, one of the, one of the greatest post-Moses Torah teachers of all time. So here we go. Rabbi Akiva says, sing every day. Sing every day. And this means, as the commentaries explain, i.e., review your studies like a song that one sings over and over. Let me explain. love that example. Rabbi Akiva gives us amazing imagery, right? So imagine a song that you really love, right? And you sing it all the time. You sing it in the morning. You sing it while you're driving to work. You sing it in the shower, whatever. You're singing it. So the same thing Rabbi Akiva says is we should review our studies of Torah like a song that a person sings over and over again. Let's continue in the Talmud. Rav Yitzchak Bar Avdumi says, from what, and let me just check in. Um, can you guys see my screen? I, I don't know if I checked in. Yes. Okay, good. All right. Rav Yitzchak Bar Avdumi says, 
Avodimi says, from what verse is this derived? In other words, how do you know this to be true? It is as it is stated in Proverbs, the hunger of the laborer labors for him, for his mouth presses upon him. Look at that verse. The hunger of the laborer labors for him, for his mouth presses upon him. Simply that means that when somebody is hungry, they're going to work hard. Right? The hunger of the laborer labors for him. And it makes him work because he's otherwise hungry. His mouth presses upon him. The mouth that he needs to eat, needs to feed himself or his family, that, that drives him to go to work each day. That's the simple meaning. But the allegorical meaning, the deeper meaning is as follows. I.e., he exhausts his mouth, Torah study, through constant review and study. In other words... The hunger of the labor labors from his mouth presses upon him is not referring only to the worker who needs to eat, but it's referring to the person who's hungry for Torah study. His mouth presses upon him, meaning he's constantly reviewing and studying and singing it again and again, like Rabbi Kiva says. He labors in Torah in this world, in this place, and his Torah labors for him in another place, the world to come. And that's how we explain the first half of the verse. The hunger of the labor labors for him, what does that mean? That he labors in Torah in this world, and the Torah works for him in the world to come in the afterlife. Which means the Torah study is beneficial for us living here today, and it's also spiritually beneficial for us in the afterlife. All right, all of that is the opening paragraph. Let's continue as we, as we explore more insights from the Talmud regarding the power of Torah study. By the way, I, uh, um, we, it's, it's, it's important to mention that what we're doing right now is studying Torah. So the benefit of what we're talking about, we're experiencing right now. Okay, let's continue. Rabbi Elazar says, Every man was created for labor. As it says, as it is stated in Job, man is born for toil. Right? As human beings are created to work. Based on this verse, I do not know whether he was created for toil of the mouth, speech, or whether he was created for the toil of labor. And it was physical labor with the hands. When the verse states in Proverbs, for his mouth presses upon him, you must say that he was created for toil of the mouth. So in other words, this is a Talmudic analysis, a Talmudic allegorical analysis. Right? So there's a verse in Job that says that human beings are created for toil, for work, for labor. And the Talmud says, so what does it mean, labor? Does it mean physical labor or speech, which also could be called work or labor or toil? So the Talmud says, based on the verse from Proverbs, when it talks about the hunger of the labor labors for him, for his mouth presses upon him, that tells us that what the labor, the toil that we're referring to in Job is referring to the toil of his mouth. And still I do not know with regard to the toil of the mouth whether it is for the toil of Torah or for the toil of conversation. When we say that a person was created to toil, what does that mean? To talk a lot or to study Torah? So when the verse states, this is from Joshua, this Torah scroll shall not depart from your mouth, you must say that he was created for the toil of Torah. So again, it's such a beautiful Torah and uh, uh, Talmudic analysis. We take three verses, one from Job, one from Proverbs, and one from Joshua. We put them all together, and the conclusion is that human beings were created to study Torah. And this is the meaning of what Rava said. All bodies are like receptacles to store items until use. Happy is the one. Happy is one who is privileged, who is a receptacle for Torah. And again, 
Here we have a similar theme. Rava says that every, the human bodies are like receptacles to store items until use. In other words, we, we contain that which we are, we, we channel, and we are a vessel for what we are involved with. So if we're talking, we're a vessel for the conversation. If we're working, we're a vessel for the work. And if we're studying Torah, we're a vessel, a receptacle for the Torah study itself. So Rava says, happy is one who is privileged, who is a receptacle, who is a, a, a vessel for Torah. Yes, Adam. Um, what does the word Torah actually mean? I know what it is. I know that, you know, it's the you know, Bible. What right. Does it actually mean? So Adam's asking, so what, what, does, what does the word Torah actually mean? It's an excellent question. So Torah, of course, refers to the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, refers to loosely the rest of the books of Scripture, refers to the works of Talmud and Jewish law. That colloquially is what we refer to as, is what's referred to as Torah. But Torah literally means, the literal meaning of Torah is instruction. It means instruction, lesson, teaching. Torah means guide. So ultimately what Torah is, is an instruction manual for life. You know, people always think, or often, not always, often think and, and wonder and, and, and say to themselves, ah, oh, if only life came with a manual, if only this came with instructions, right? If only kids came with instructions, right? We have all these little sayings, but we believe that we do have instructions. We have a guidebook for living, which is, which is the Torah. Okay, so let's continue. Um, any other questions so far? Um, please jump in. Questions, comments? So far, so good? Okay. All right, let's continue. Apropos. Apropos the significance of Torah study, Rabbi Alexandri says, anyone who engages in the study of Torah for its own sake, I will explain what that means in a moment, introduces peace into the heavenly entourage above, and into the earthly entourage below. As it is stated, or let him take hold of my stronghold, Ma'uzi, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. From Isaiah. One who observes the Torah, which is called Oz, strength, introduces peace even before the presence of God, as it were. That, that paragraph, as you'll see today, will be very highly significant to our study of Kabbalah. So therefore, let's explain a little bit deeper what this Talmudic passage is saying. So again, the Talmudic scholar that's being quoted is Rabbi Alexandri. I would imagine he it's probably related Alexandri. Well, so Alexander the Great ultimately became a friend of the Jews. And many Jews named their kids Alexander. That's why even till today, Alexander is a Jewish name. Um, there's a Yiddish version of Alexander, which is sender. So if you know any senders, it's from Alexander. Anyway, yeah, the Talmud has a very, um, a very, a very interesting story about Alexander the Great and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who had a connection, a relationship. Alexander the Great, if I'm not mistaken, when he first met Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was the compiler of the Mishnah, he was the one who first compiled the Mishnah. So... Um, Alexander the Great dismounted from his horse and he bowed down to him. And everyone was shocked, like, what's going on? And he said, before I go into battle, I see a vision of this rabbi and he blesses me. 
And I've been successful every time. So he was paying, you know, a, a tribute, if you will, to, to the rabbi that he had seen in these visions. Anyway, so there's a long story and they became close and became, you know, friendly with each other. Either way, so this is Rabbi Alexandria, who I'm assuming was one of the scholars ultimately named after Alexander. So Rabbi Alexandria is saying like this. Anyone, I, I'm, we did this paragraph, right? This one that's, uh, I'll highlight it right here so everyone knows which one we're up to, right? Apropos, that paragraph. So the first thing he says is anyone who's engaged in the study of Torah for its own sake. The question is, what does it mean to study Torah for its own sake? So let me give you a very quick explanation of what that means. So there's learning, and this is referred to as learning Torah lishma, for the sake of the Torah. You see, human ego is such that it can mess up really any activity, even one that is as holy as Torah study. And when I say mess up, what I mean is that the ego can shift our study of Torah from being a pure experience to being one that is driven by self-satisfaction or by um, a desire to become respected or to become knowledgeable or to become a sage, a scholar, a rabbi, whatever it is. So when a person studies Torah for all of these side, benefit, side benefits or personal benefits, that's called not studying Torah for its own sake. That's studying Torah for your own sake, not for the sake of Torah. Studying Torah for its own sake means that I study Torah completely and exclusively in order to study Torah. It's a mitzvah. It's God's Torah. I'm studying it. So there's a, a humility, and a, a, we'll use the word that we've used often in our Kabbalistic text. There's a bittel. There's a humility, a self-nullification in that experience. As opposed to if I'm learning it because I have an agenda. I'm learning it in order to become respected, become a scholar, become the person that everyone asks questions to. So that means that, that would be a case of learning Torah not for its own sake. Learning Torah for its own sake means I'm doing it completely for the mitzvah. So the Talmud says, hold on, the Talmud is saying that if we study, one who studies Torah for its own sake, in other words, purely without an agenda, completely in order to do the mitzvah of Torah study, so that person and that experience actually creates peace above and peace below. There's peace in the heavenly entourage above and peace in the, heaven, in the earthly entourage below. So now the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that it creates peace above and below? And what's this heavenly entourage and what's the earthly entourage? I'm going to give you the simple explanation. Later on today, I'm going to give you the Kabbalistic explanation. And that's going to tie into our text, as you'll see in a moment. But first, this, the simple explanation. The simple explanation cited by commentaries is that when a person studies Torah for its own sake, without ego, not selfishly, but selflessly, so that person creates such intense merits, positive energy for themselves, that when they pass away, after 120 years lived on this earth, when they pass away, and they go up to heaven, and they stand before the heavenly tribunal, the heavenly court, there's no debate in the court as to what should happen. In other words, it's clear that this person this soul that's standing in front of the court should be blessed with heaven and an incredible reward with, uh, with, with, a, with a beautiful afterlife. 
So that's what it means that when we engage in, in the study of Torah for its own sake, that introduces peace in the heavenly entourage above, i.e. the heavenly court. The heavenly court doesn't need to debate anymore. There's no debate. There's no question as what's the fate of this person or this soul. It's clear that the fate is only blessing and only positivity and only, um, only, only reward. So that's the simple explanation. What does it mean that it introduces peace in the earthly entourage below? It means when, when a person studies Torah for its own sake, they are more attuned to be able to live peacefully with others. Torah creates a... Not Torah study from a place of ego, because that's, again, ego and ego versus ego. That's where conflict comes from. But Torah studied selflessly for its own sake, for the sake of Torah and for the sake of Hashem, not for one's ego, but for the sake of what's right, that creates a scenario where that person is more butthole, is more self-abnegated, less ego-driven in their life, and they're more likely to have a, to have a peaceful atmosphere around them on this earth in the earthly entourage below. And the proof text that we're using is from Isaiah, where it says, let him, God is speaking, let him take hold of my stronghold. My stronghold refers to Torah, because Torah is God's strength, so to speak, that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. It says twice, peace. He sh- he, that he may let the person take hold of Torah and what's the benefit? What happens? What's the consequence? Number one, he may, he may make peace with me. And number two, he shall make peace with me. So two instances or two iterations of peace. One above in the heavenly entourage and one below in the earthly entourage. So what's the bottom line? Torah study is the key to peace, which you might have put uh, the pieces together. That's going to be the major theme of today's Kabbalistic conversation based on this piece of Talmud, although we're not, st- we're not done yet with the Talmud study yet. But nonetheless, good to see you. But nonetheless, um, I just want to mention that this is where um, this is where um, a lot of that, uh, a lot of our Kabbalistic conversation will come in. So let me check in for a second. Let me stop sharing and let's check in. Any questions, comments, clarifications so far? Yes, Toba, go ahead. Wait, hold on. You got to unmute. minor and it's a digression but Alexander the Great lived like 300 BC and Rabbi Yehuda Hadassi and the Mishnah was like 100 and something CE so how do they connect the two people? That's a good question that's a very good question so it could be I got the scholars wrong it could be it wasn't Rabbi Yehuda Hadassi it could be that it was another scholar but it was definitely a rabbi um, or maybe it was a high priest. It might have been a high priest. It was some, some Jewish leader. It was some, some Jewish guy that was connected with Alexander the Great, definitely. Because, yeah, no, but thanks, thanks for clarifying um, with the timeline. So we have to look it up in the original Talmud. But honestly, the best way to do it, and you can do it right now, if, uh, if you guys are on the computer, certainly you can do it. Just Google um, Alexander the Great Talmud. 
And I'm sure you're going to find the stories there that speak to Alexander the Great's connection with some Jewish figure, which then spawned a, tight, a, a positive relationship. By the way, this is before the relationship soured. So that makes sense that it was actually in the earlier times of the Second Temple era before things went south. With, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Any other questions about the, the Talmud? Yeah, Adam, go ahead. So, you know, let's say you want to study Torah for like, I mean, it is a personal benefit. Let's say like you want to become a better person and that's, that's your main motivation as to why you're studying Torah. Is that like a bad thing? So that's a good question. So Adam's asking, so what if a person wants to study Torah in order to, for self-improvement, to become a better person? Is that considered that, a, an agenda? Depends how subtle you want to get. In other words, on a, look, in general, it's, it's okay. First of all, in general, any time we study Torah, even if it's for, the, for not the right reasons, it's still better than nothing, right? But studying Torah in order to improve ourselves is still somewhat of an agenda. So it's not 100% pure. The pure way to study Torah is, it's a mitzvah, it's a calling, I'm going to study it, and completely you know, d surrender in that experience. But that's the highest level. Is it realistic to expect that? Maybe, from time to time. Probably not realistic that every time we study Torah, we're going to be in that selfless state. But that's, that's the goal. But look, in between the state of studying Torah from a completely selfless place to studying Torah with an agenda to become respected and other people look at me and, and like me, so there's a big spectrum of, of gray in between, right? right? So uh, something as like, I want to become more of a mensch. So I know studying Torah is going to help me do that. I, I would put that closer to the selfless than the selfish, but there's still a trace of ego there. The e even if it's a holy ego, there's a trace of ego. Right. The ultimate goal would be like to do it for other people. Yeah, or to do it for God because God wants me to do it. Yeah, ultimately the, 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 the most selfless way to do it is not for self at all. Is it realistic to expect that? Probably not so realistic all the time. Um, to, have the, to have the motivation of Torah study that I want to be a, a more holy, a more spiritual person, of all of the somewhat ego-driven, subtly ego-driven motivations, that's probably the highest. In other words... Isn't, isn't that one of the... Because, I mean, the whole purpose is to cool. It's, it's correct. So if, yeah. If you're doing it for that purpose, aren't you technically... You're doing what God's asking you to do. God's like, right. hey, you need to correct. In other words, you're saying like if you're doing it for the sake of, of, of correction, correcting self, correcting the world, isn't that a holy motivation? The answer is yes. But again, from a Kabbalistic place, Still. you know, Kabbalah, will talk, Kabbalah talks about even on, on this level. If a person says, I love God, right? A person says, you know, I'm in love with God. There's still ego. In the language of Kabbalah, there's a yesh misha ohev. There's, a, there's an I who loves so I love God, there's still an I. So that the purest level is where there's not even an I. But again, does that mean that I love God is a bad thing? Of course not. Is it a good thing? Yes. Is it, the mo is it completely surrendered? No, there's a trace. But I would say that I, I would probably consider that to still be one level of Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake, for the sake of Torah. Because that is what the Torah wants. The Torah doesn't want me to become arrogant when studying Torah. So if that's my agenda, that I want to become, I want, I want to stroke my ego more so that I can feel more arrogant, that's, going, that's an affront to what the experience is about. But if I want to be a better person, that's already a little bit, in, not a little bit, that's very in concert with what the Torah itself, with, with what God wants and what the Torah wants. So it's not, uh, 
it's it's not it's not going against it's not a contradiction. Is it is it the purest way of studying Torah? It's still not the purest way, but it's okay. it's it's getting close. Okay, thank you. Sure. Any other questions, comments? Okay, let's continue. I'm going to share my screen again. Let's jump back inside the text. Again, this is from the Talmud. Last paragraph on the first side. Rav. Oh, sorry. Me. Okay, here we go. I'm highlighting that paragraph. Rav says, It is as though when a person studies Torah for its own sake, for the sake of Torah, it is as though he built a palace of heaven above and of earth below. As it is stated, and I have placed my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand to plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. In other words, one, in the, in the brackets, here's the commentary, one who has the word of God placed in his mouth through Torah study has established heaven and earth. You see, look at the text again from Isaiah, the quote from Isaiah. I've placed my words, my words of Torah in your mouth. I've covered you in the shadow of my hand. And what, is it, what, what happens when we have Torah? To plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. So it builds, so to speak, establishes heaven and earth through Torah study. Okay, so that's all the first half. of the, that, That's all the first half. That's uh, the first half of our handout. Let's now segue to the second half. Again, all about the power of Torah study. And let's quote now Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan, good to see you. Rabbi Yochanan says, One who engages in Torah study also protects the entire world. Look at this one. You want to save the world? You want to protect the world? Torah study. One who engages in Torah study also protects the entire world. Remember, we're studying Torah now. I'm just saying. As, hopefully for the right reasons. As it is stated, And I have covered you in the shadow of my hand. And Levi says, He also advances the coming of Mashiach, the coming of the redemption. As it is stated, and say to Zion, you are my people. Let's continue. Reish Lakish said, I, I, I feel like I need to tell the bio of Reish Lakish. I, I know I mentioned it before, but I need to mention it again. You know who Reish Lakish was? Okay, let me stop sharing for a second. Let's talk about uh, Reish Lakish is Rabbi Shimon, the son, Ben Lakish. Rabbi Shimon Ben Lakish. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish grew up in a Jewish community. And according to some traditions, he went to Jewish schooling. But when he got a little bit older, he turned to a life of crime. And he became a highway bandit, a highway robber. So he would stand, no, legit, he would stand. I mean, this is what the, the Talmud itself says. He was a Talmudic scholar. The Talmud tells us this. He would, you know, they would lurk him and his crew. He was the head of a gang. They would you know, lurk on the side of the road, um, you know, highway or for whatever it was, and they would, you know, jump on people and, and steal and rob. And that's, that's who he was. Until one day he encountered Rabbi Yochanan, who was a childhood friend who he hadn't seen in years. And Rabbi Yochanan was hanging out, and this guy, maybe he was lurking, whatever it was, and he says, Yochanan, because they know each other's kids, Shimon, and they kind of they reconnected after all these years. And one was a, a scholar, and the other one was a, a, a criminal. And, and Rabbi Yochanan, and so they started talking. 
And Rabbi Yochanan, of course, Rabbi Yochanan encouraged him to leave his life of crime and come back, come back into, uh, into the, into the community, into the space of, of Torah and mitzvot and Judaism. And eventually, he prevailed on him, and, and Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, Shimon ben Lakish completely dropped his life of crime. He abandoned his negative ways. He turned in his weapons, and that's it. And he, uh, he jumped into t- t- Torah scholarship. He eventually married Rabbi, o- Rabbi Yochanan's sister, so not only were they friends, not only did Rabbi Yochanan have turn his life around, but they were brothers, brothers-in-law, and they were famous sparring partners in Talmud. So when you study Talmud, and there's and laws are discussed, you will often find, in the context of a law, Rabbi Yochanan says one thing, and Reish Lakish says another thing. They were they were often. They were study partners, but because of that, they, they often disagreed on matters of law, and and they uh, and 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 it's recorded in the Talmud. Very tragic end of the story, by the way. I think it was Reish Lakish who died first, and Rabbi Yochanan was so distraught. He lost his brother-in-law and his study partner, and he was he was beyond like he was inconsolable because he he didn't have who to study with, and and he lost his closest friend in the world, and so. The other scholars, they, they nominated someone else to be a study partner. And they were studying together. Rabbi Yochanan said, you know, an idea in Torah law. And the fellow, his new study partner, agreed with him and gave him, you know, a bunch of proofs to support him. He started crying. He said, I don't need someone to support my ideas. I know my ideas are sound. When I would learn with Reish Lakish, Rabbi Shimon Lakish, every lie I would say, he would come back with me with, I forget the number, 6, 12, 24, one of those denominations, with like a bunch of uh, proofs against what I said. And then I would come back with proofs supporting my position. He would come back with more against my position. And that's how Jewish law was, uh, that's how we, came, we arrived at a law, through that process of sharpening iron against iron, logic against logic, sharpening each other to get to a point. But to have a yes person, that I should say a law, yeah, yeah, I agree with you, I don't need that. I agree with myself, I don't need someone else to agree with me, I need someone to push back against me. Anyway, he eventually, he, just, he, was, he never got over the loss of Reish Lakish, and eventually Rabbi Yochanan died in a, in a, uh, in, in a, in a very tragic way. That's the, the Talmud tells these stories. Um, but getting back it's a bit of a morbid story here because we're in a happy place in the Talmud. Nonetheless, I felt like I should just share who Rabbi Reish Lakish was as we quote him. Oh, and Rabbi Yochanan is right over here. There we go. Yeah, the, the, the partners, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish. Here we go. So Reish Lakish said, with regard, Reish, by the way, is an acronym for Rabbi Shimon. Ra-sh-resh, right? In Hebrew, Rabbi, Reish, Shimon, Shin, put the two together, the acronym, Reish Lakish, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, said, with regard to anyone who teaches Torah to the son of another, the verse ascribes him credit as though he formed that student. As it is stated, I wanted to read, I, I quoted this from the Talmud because we just read it, in yesterday's Torah portion, it says, And Abraham, Avram, Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and the souls that they formed in 
Haran. What does it mean, the souls they formed in Haran? They didn't have any children. What kind of souls did they form? So that refers to the students that they taught, the people that they taught, monotheism and Torah to whatever Torah looked like before the Torah was actually given at Sinai. But that's, it, those other people that they influenced are considered souls that they formed because they, they educated. So in the, in the brackets over there, they're given credit for forming the students to whom they taught Torah. Again, just to clarify, I mentioned it parenthetically. Let me just focus a, a minute on it. When we say that, they, that Abraham and Sarah taught Torah to people, this is hundreds of years before the revelation at Mount Sinai and the formal giving of the Torah and the Ten Commandments. Nonetheless, there was some form of iteration of Torah and the mitzvot even before it was formally given. It says the patriarchs and the matriarchs all studied Torah and they kept the Torah, again, in, in, in some form before it was formally given at Sinai. What's the difference than what happened at Sinai? If, we already, if, if it already existed, so then what did they get at Sinai? That's for another conversation and another time. And it's a, it's, it's a, it, there's a great Kabbalistic insight into it, but it's not for right now. It's going to take us too far off track. Let's continue. Rabbi Elazar says, It is though, it is, it is as though, when, when somebody teaches Torah to someone else, it, it, it is as though he fashioned the words of Torah themselves. As it is stated, observe the words of this covenant, va'asitem otam, and you shall make them, meaning indicating that studying the Torah is like fashioning it. In other words, when we study and teach Torah, we're almost giving life to the Torah itself. Right? We're sustaining the Torah itself by studying it and teaching it to others. Let's continue the final point that we're quoting here today. Rava says, it, it, it is as though, when studying and teaching Torah, he fashioned himself. As it is stated, the same verse, Va'asitem otam, do not read Va'asitem otam, as, and you shall fashion them, rather, va'asitem atem, meaning you shall fashion yourself, which means that when we study and teach Torah, we actually sustain ourselves. So here we have three insights, the last three paragraphs, three insights. When we study and teach Torah, we help build another. We help sustain another person. When we study and teach Torah, we sustain the Torah itself. When we study and teach Torah, we sustain ourselves. So it benefits the other it benefits the Torah, and it benefits ourselves. Those are the last few paragraphs quoted from the Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin 99b. All right, let me stop sharing and check in with everybody. Any questions or comments on the Talmudic passage? Questions, comments, rebuttals? So, so what if um, you teach a student and like, they go bad? Are you giving credit for that? <laughs> saying they go rogue. Yeah. If you teach someone and they go rogue, I don't know. Well, it does say that it, you know, teaching is a responsibility because, you know, it, it says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, it says that chachamim, scholars, be very careful with your words because maybe they'll be misconstrued and end up steering the student wrong and then the, the name of God will be um, de uh, desecrated because of you. So yeah, it actually does say that there is some sort of liability and responsibility. Yeah. Which is why I always have a disclaimer on my classes. <laughs> that whatever happens, it's not me. No liability. I'm kidding. No, it's a responsibility. Yeah, of course. Wisdom is power and etc. By the way, that's why classically, 
for thousands, literally thousands of years, Kabbalah was not taught publicly. Because of that, because of the concern that very abstract concepts could be completely misconstrued, like you talk about worlds and energies and sefirot and dimensions, and suddenly people have a picture of a composite God that has names and labels, and now they think of God as being multifaceted, if you will, and, and that is, undermines the notion of monotheism and imageless and formless God, etc., that it is at the core of Judaism. So to be able to reconcile, to be able to balance what Kabbalah says about God with, and Kabbalah's not disagreeing with Judaism, obviously, because this is the deeper understanding of it, but to, to understand it and keep it in an abstract place and not concretize it is very challenging. My point is only that, yeah, it's, it's a very big responsibility to teach Torah, especially to teach Kabbalah, but hey, we live in a generation now where we need it more than ever, and therefore, we throw caution to the wind. I'm kidding. We're still cautious, but we accept the dangers with a sense that it's absolutely necessary. I think I, told, I, think I gave the, the parable that the Alter Rebbe gave, the founder of Chabad, gave a few hundred years ago about why the proliferation, why the um, explosion of, of mystical, um, mystical Jewish thought in the public. And basically... The, the parable that he gave was when the king's son is, is sick. Yeah, you got to crush a jewel. And even if the whole jewel, because it's, it's necessary. It's not, it's not a luxury anymore. It's not like, well, you know, Kabbalah's cherry is icing on the, what's the, what's the cliche I'm trying to use? Icing on the cake or cherry, the cherry on top, something like that. Right? It's not like extra. It's like a necessity. I'm trying to get my dessert analogies clear. I don't know. Anyway. Right? Cherry with the whipped cream on top. Cherry with the whipped cream on top, right? It's not that. It's now the bread and butter. That's the, that's the whole, that's the shift. Because today, you're not going to inspire someone by saying, you know what? This is what you need to do. That, that's, not, that's not inspiring. That's not insp- I'm not saying it's not correct, but that's not inspiring in 2020 or even in 1820. Yeah, Leonora. <laughs> Go ahead. Wasn't it uh, at one time Kabbalah was only taught to men? Is that correct? Well, it was uh, not necessarily, but mainly men. But it was a restriction of over 40. And having been proficient already in every other area of scholarship. In other words, you had to be completely proficient. An expert in the Torah, in Jewish law, the Talmud, in every other area. And then a person was able to graduate, if you will, into Kabbalah. Because the thought was, then they're not going to misconstrue. <coughs> After having so much clarity, they're not going to misconstrue what's being taught. Today, yeah, well, it does. But today, we don't, we don't put those restrictions. And by the way, it's not me, you know, who's saying, you know, let's, let's just you know, put it out there. This is, these are the great Kabbalists who shifted. It really started from the Arizal in the 1500s, the great holy Arizal, um, Rabbi Isaac Luria, who, of course, is the father of Luriana Kabbalah, which is the most, the branch of Kabbalah that's the most well-studied well today. Rabbi Isaac Luria is the first one that really opened the gates, so to speak, or opened the doors. And then the Baal Shem Tov opened it more, and then the Alter Rebbe opened it more, and then it's been successfully opened, opened, opened. And, and, and the understanding is twofold, like we explained last time. Number one, we need it. And number two, the closer we get to Mashiach, 
the closer we get to the time when that wisdom will be everywhere, literally saturating the earth, the more taste of that we get as we get closer. Like the example that I gave, it's like, and this is not my example, this is what's in the good books. It says it's like eating from the Shabbat food before Shabbat, like tasting a little bit of the food. So, in, in the effort of full disclosure, this Friday, and it was two days ago, I was making a potato kugel. By the way, if you don't know what potato kugel is, you got to have a potato kugel. And if you're having a potato kugel, you have to have my potato kugel. I'm just saying, because I make a potato kugel to live, to live for, right? I, I, listen, I don't... Yeah, I'm happy to share it. It's a simple recipe. Yeah, I'm happy to share a simple recipe. Should I share it now? I don't. I mean, I don't know if now is the time or place, but I don't. Listen. All right. You ready? I'll mention it. Why not? This is Kabbalah and coffee and kugel. That's it. Kabbalah and kugel. You ready? It's fine. The I the, the quantity that I'm giving you now makes two eight and a half uh, um, two. Half pans, two like um, not the large pan, but like the, right. like the whatever, like the nine, nine by thirteen. Thank you. Now, I'm eight by eleven, and that's like yeah. shit. Nine by thirteen, two nine by thirteens. You ready? So listen, for us, yeah. it's good enough to get me until Shabbos. Are you with me? What I'm saying? For, for yeah. when I make this at home, it almost makes it to Shabbos. In other words, good luck having it for Shabbos. This almost makes it through Friday afternoon. Okay, it's five pounds of potatoes. I use Yukon Gold. It's three pounds of onions. I use Sweet Vidalia. I use five eggs. I don't have a preference there. I use three quarters of a cup of oil, a tablespoon of salt, and pepper, however you like it. And that is it. I use a food processor to shred the onions and the potatoes. And once that's done, I mix with it the five eggs and the three-quarters of a cup of oil and the salt and the pepper. You stir it up. You bake it on 375 or 400, depending on your oven, for about an hour and a half. You have never had kugel like this, and that's it. By the way, if you want to make a potato latke, same recipe, give or take. How long did you cook it for? About an hour and a half, an hour and a half. Or until, until the kids get really anxious. Sometimes it comes out before that. So here's, here's my point. So this is a true story. This happened uh, two days ago. Today's Sunday, right? Shabbos, Monday, uh, Friday, whatever. Going backwards now. So two days ago, I'm, I'm making the kugel. And it's for Shabbos, by the way, right? I mean, let's be clear here. I'm making the kugel for Shabbos. Pull out the kugel. Uh, is the kugel ready? Yeah, the kugel's ready. Can we have some kugel? Sure. Like I said before, it almost made it to Shabbos. It almost, we had like a row left or something. What's the point? The point is, that's actually a good thing. I mean, you know, it's also good to have kugel on Shabbos, but it's never as good as when it first comes out anyway, so might as well. So, but here's the point. That you taste before Shabbos from the food that you made for Shabbos. So the light of Mashiach, what's the light of Mashiach? What is Mashiach? What it's like, we tell the kids, there's a kid's song, that all the trees will be growing candy. Is that really Mashiach? I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be opposed to that, you know. But is that really Mashiach? Mashiach is a spiritual, a state of spiritual awareness. It's, it's you know those moments of, of epiphany, of truth? 
when everything is clear, when everything is clear, when you, you know clarity of purpose and clarity of mission and clarity of, of everything is clear, imagine 24-7 clarity. So Mashiach is. It's, it's an awareness of God. In the words of Isaiah, he says, He says, the world, the world will be will be filled with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the ocean bed. So just like the waters, that the ocean, right? The waters of the ocean completely cover and saturate whatever the ocean bed. It's completely, you know, the water is all, is all, is all there. So too, the knowledge of God will completely um, take the world. The world will be completely taken in. And, and, and absorbed in this knowledge of God. So what's the, what's, what's the point? The point is that Mashiach is really a time when everyone is going to be a Kabbalist. Right? Everyone's going to know God from the inside out. And so it's no wonder then that this wisdom is becoming more and more accessible as we get closer and closer to that time. I should also mention, and I know I've mentioned this before, and I think I even shared it at some point, I think at some point during the last few months, I think I shared this, there's a prophecy in the Zohar, which is the primary work of Kabbalah, written a few thousand years ago by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. There's a prophecy in Kabbalah <coughs> about what's going to happen in the end of days. And it says that like in the times of Noah with the flood, that the flood waters came in both from above and below. It says, if you read this, the language of the Torah, it says that the, the pools of water from below rose up and the apertures of heaven also opened up. So there was rain from above. And, you know, we know waters, hot springs, whatever it is, whatever water is below, they both, came, they both were part of the flood that inundated the earth. So it says, just like it happened then with the flood, obviously in a negative way or whatever, but when Mashiach comes, or before Mashiach comes, there's, there's, there will likewise be an explosion of information, both from above and below, which means divine wisdom will be opened, which is Kabbalah, but also human wisdom will be opened below. And the year that the Zohar talks about roughly corresponds to the mid-1800s, which is the beginning of, roughly the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The understanding is, and the Rebbe spoke about this um, a few, several times, is that that marks a time when really human wisdom opened up. There was a status quo of what people knew and the way people operated for hundreds of years. But then in and around the mid-1800s, you have this explosion of innovation that we still see to this very day, and it parallels the explosion of divine wisdom that also is, uh, is, is found in this world. So it's interesting how we have you know, both human knowledge explodes and expands, and also divine knowledge, divine wisdom, explodes and expands at the very, roughly the same era, and it, it keeps on you know, picking up speed and energy. Anyway, so that's a little bit about Kabbalah, but you can certainly see how there is a responsibility to studying and teaching Torah and studying and teaching Kabbalah that, uh, that is not to be taken lightly. Okay, 
Um, any questions or comments thus far? Rabbi? Yes. Rabbi. Donna, yeah. So, um, so you mentioned the other day like that many non-Jews are into Kabbalah. Kabbalah, like actors and things like that, like Madonna, I think you said. Sure. So how does that relate? I mean, do they... Are they studying Judaism? Do they acknowledge that it's Judaism? Or That's a really good question. So I, you would have to ask the individual, but I would say, look, it, and this is a very important, you asked a really good question. I mean, a question I can't really answer because it's about what somebody else believes, but, but what you're touching on is a very important point, and that's, thank you for mentioning it because it's, it's, it's apropos to this conversation. Judaism is very unique in that it does not believe that Mashiach is, ex- is exclusively for Jews. Like you have some religions believe that the only way to, you know, whatever, have a connection or experience whatever, whatever's coming next is if you um, specifically, you know, join this group, right? It's good for membership, I guess. But <laughs> Judaism is never about building membership. Judaism teaches that Mashiach is a global reality. Umala kol ha'aretz. The entire world will be filled with the knowledge of God. It says another verse, The entire, um, all flesh together will see that the word of mouth is speaking. Kind of like the imagery that I get is the matrix, right? Everyone will see with their eyes how it's the word of God that's creating everything at every moment. That's like, remember the matrix? You suddenly see everything. You see all that stuff. Right? We don't see it now, typically, right? Because we can't, because we're not meant to. Mashiach comes, that's our truth. We see it. So who's at force for everybody? So the fact that, 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 that people across cultures and beliefs and, you know, whatever, are studying Kabbalah or, 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 or concepts similar to Kabbalah is a good thing. By the way... Um, I've had many conversations. I have a friend out in California. We, we speak um, uh, on a regular basis. And he loves bringing um, other philosophies and other religions and other sp- their spiritual teachings. Not necessarily the stuff on the ground, but the spiritual stuff. And showing how it aligns perfectly with Kabbalah and Judaism. And, and the deeper you go in many Traditions, many faiths, many philosophies, many spiritual paths, the deeper you go, the more unified you realize that things really are. And it's actually an amazing thing. It's actually pretty cool. So what's my point? My point is, if you want to know if Madonna considers herself to be studying Jewish mysticism or just mysticism, if she thinks that she's studying Torah or is Kabbalah not Torah, that I don't know. How the, I think she studies at the Kabbalah, or she studied at the Kabbalah Center. Do they present it as connected, or do they present it as a standalone? Again, I don't know that either. But here's the truth. The truth is Kabbalah is not standalone. Kabbalah is the soul of Torah. At the same time, Kabbalah speaks of universal truth. So I think, you know, what somebody thinks or how they perceive it, that's one question. But the, tru- the, the truth of the matter is, it's all connected. All right. So now, that's a perfect segue, actually. Now we can jump into the Kabbalah. Let's jump into the Kabbalah. Oh, oh Adam, go ahead. Um, wasn't it true that uh, Job wasn't actually a Jew? So who was Job? It's a good question. I know there's a, dis- there's a discussion in the Talmud about Job. So there are different opinions. It's not so clear-cut. Okay. 
Some have him as, it's, 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 it's complicated. So we still have to, the, the jury's still out about Job. I mean, Job was a, was a complicated person, but uh, the jury's still out about his identity. According to some, one tradition, Job was one of the three advisors of Pharaoh back in the day. There was Job, there was Balaam, the evil prophet for hire, Balaam from Balaam and the donkey, right? Fame. And the third was Yisro, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Yeah, but, but God was giving revelations to Gentiles. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Balaam was a, yeah, there were people, for sure. Yeah, God was speaking, yeah, it wasn't exclusively. God spoke to, 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 to Job, God spoke to Balaam. It wasn't exclusive. Now, by the way, I should mention also, very important, very important. Sandrine, do you mind? Um, or, or a chumash? Can you bring me a chumash from the back? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So I want to tell you something that is very cool. It's, again, part of this, part of this uh, piece of conversation now about kind of the connections. No, no, the chumash. Sorry, the... Yeah, yeah. The, no, no worries. No worries. So we, in the story of Abraham... We know that Abraham initially, Abraham and his wife could not have children. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. So Abraham and his wife could not have children. So what does Sarai, his wife, say? Go be with Hagar, Hagar, right? Hagar, and have a child with her. And then, but that doesn't, uh, that never really like 100% works out because it's, I don't know, caused a lot of hard feelings and whatever. But Ishmael was born. And then, you know, later on, so Isaac is born. And then, so, this is at the end of the Torah portion of Chaye Sarah. So to give you a little context, we just read Lech Lecha yesterday. This week is Vayera. Next week is Chayesar. So this is the end of next week's Torah portion. So it's kind of like timely, not exactly this week, but almost this week. So again, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael from Hagar, the handmaid, and Isaac, Yitzchak, from Sarah, his wife. And then Sarah passes away. Sarah passes away. And the Torah talks about it, how he buries her and how he buys a, a, a plot of land, the cave of Machpelah, etc., all that stuff. The end of next week's Torah portion, not this coming week's, not this week's, next week's Torah portion. We have a section here. See that? Abraham remarries. Can you guys see that? Yes? I'm going to read a little bit of insight. I'll read from the, from the translation here. Abraham took another wife and her name was Keturah. But look at the parentheses. Can you guys read that? You see what it says about Keturah? Who was Keturah? Also known as Hagar. So he remarried Hagar. He remarried. So, so Sarah passes away. He remarries Hagar. She bore him Zimran, Yakshan, Medan, Midjan, Yashbak, Yishbak, Shuach. Yakshan fathered Sheva and Didan. The sons of Didan were Ashurim, Latushan, and Luumim. The sons of Midjan were Epha, Epher, Hanoch, Avida, and Elda. All these were Keturah's descendants. So, Hold on one second. So one, one more paragraph. 
Abraham gave all the all the the ble- gave all that he possessed to Isaac to the sons of Abraham's concubine Hagar, also known as Keturah. Abraham gave gifts. He sent them away eastward from his son Isaac while he was still alive to the land of the east. He sent them away to the east and gave them gifts. This is not commentary. This is what the Torah says. He sent them to the east and gave them gifts. What kind of gifts? So, one second. So there are commentaries that explain that what gifts did he give? Gifts of wisdom. And I've mentioned this before, I'm sure in Kabbalah and Coffee, that there are those who posit that a lot of the Eastern religions and philosophies are originating ultimately from a common, a common source, from an Abrahamic source. Or had some sort of influence, exactly. Some sort of influence. Ultimately, they're all coming, they're all connected at the top somewhere. Again, we don't know for sure, but that's what it seems to imply even from a, from a, from a reading of the Torah. Um, oh, David's writing something interesting in the chat. I've seen this, yes. Um, Tfilin Shalyar connects with 120 acupuncture sites. Yes. There have been studies that have showed that as you wrap tefillin on the arm, it actually hits on, 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 on specific parts. It's interesting because, and some of you have been there, Hasofer, the, the scribe on, in, in Crown Heights, on Kingston Avenue. You go up to one of the rooms over there where they're doing their scribe, scribe stuff, and they actually have that on the wall. They have a picture from that magazine that was published a few years ago a picture of the tefillin, and it was a write-up in some scientific journal about the tefillin, about the acupuncture points and everything. So anyway, that's where I, that's where I first encountered it, um, in the, the, on the wall of the sofa scribe in Crown Heights. Okay, so let's get into Kabbalah now. Although we've been discussing Kabbalah, of course, up until now. So here's, here's where we need to, to begin. This discourse that we're studying... Hechaltsu Ranat, right? This discourse is trying to understand where conflict comes from. Where does hatred, where does conflict come from? Interpersonal, quite literally, straight up, interpersonal conflict. Not getting along with another person. Where does that come from? And what he says is he traces it back to the Klippa of Midian. Klippa means the evil force. And Midian was an ancient country. So the Midian represents a Klippa, an evil force of disunity. Yes, Dr. Maxi. So is this Midian the same Midian that you just read in the Chumash as a descendant of Agar and Abraham? That's a really good question. I believe that it's a different, even though it had the same name, I believe that it's different. That's a good, that's a very good point. I believe, let's see it in the Hebrew, because I just read it in the English. Let me see if it's spelled the same way in the Hebrew. Give me a sec. Yeah, it's spelled the same way. Midjan. The, only, the reason why, so I don't, the, the, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking probably not simply because he sent them to the east. 
And that they, Midian was right around the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. That's where they encountered them. They were living kind of in that region. So I don't know. It's a good question. We would have to get our, um, our research team on that. <laughs> I'm not sure even where to look. But it, I can't say no. I can't rule it out. But I'm thinking probably not. But I don't know. But anyway, Midjan, um, in the, the story in the book of Numbers, so Midjan is the nation that antagonizes the Jewish people and causes them to sin and causes a lot of discord amongst the Jews. Remember the, um, the story of Pinchas, who spears the Jewish prince and the Midianite princess. And that caused a lot of internal strife amongst the Jewish people. So basically, Midjan, and even the Hebrew word Midjan is related to the, to, to the Hebrew word Madon Meriva, which means fighting and conflict. Bottom line is, Midjan spiritually represents conflict. And the way we've framed it in this text is that conflict stands diametrically opposed to God. Ha, specifically, the name Havaya, the name Yurkevavke, the four-letter name of God. Because the four-letter name of God, or Havaya, is all about unity, and Midjan is all about disunity. So these are the two opposing forces. On the one side, right, this is the cage match. You have Havaya, right, God, God's name, the highest name of God, the Tetragrammaton, that's all about unity. And then you have Midjan, which is about disunity. So you have a force that's all about, it's like, you know, magnets. Apple came out with a phone a few weeks ago that's all about magnets. The back of the phone is magnetized, so you can charge it with a magnet, whatever. Right? So Havaya is magnetic. It's all about pulling things together. And Midjan is all about the opposite of magnet. I guess even if you... Whatever, also magnets maybe, but the other way. Pushing, pushing things apart. Resistance. Oh, good, resistance. Another way to think about it is the difference between water and fire. Not, it's not going to work 100%, but what happens when you take, what happens when you take flour? This is not my kugel recipe that I gave already. This is not my challah recipe. I'm kidding, I don't have a challah recipe. I should, but I don't. Leah has a challah recipe. So what happens when you take flour, which is essentially like little pieces of separate stuff, flour, right? It's like granules of separate things. And you mix water with it, what happens? It comes together as a, as a cohesive whole. It becomes a dough, right? It comes together. So water connects what does fire do? Well, you take challah and you put it in the oven, you bake it and you leave it in there too long. What's going to happen? It's going to burn. And what happens when something burns? It breaks into small pieces, right? Which means that it falls apart again. So water tends to bring together and fire tends to split apart. Again, your mileage may vary. You could say, well, no, I cooked, I used fire and it brought it together. I, fine. Or water, a flood can erode. I, true. True, that's why it's not a hard and fast rule, but in Kabbalah, this is a little bit of imagery. Imagery is always good, because it's good to 
abstract is abstract concepts are good, but also having something concrete to think about is also helpful for the meditation in the mind. So we have the water energy, which is the, um, the, the joining energy, and the fire energy, which is the separating energy. So the forces are Havaya, which is God's name, which is holiness, which is bring together. So the rule of thumb is holiness is all about bringing together, and unholiness is all about separating things. Now, oh, and therefore, he said, in this, in the, earlier on in this, in this text, in this discourse, this is why the battle against Midian is the ultimate battle that God commanded Moses about and represents his final act on earth. In other words, the ultimate battle of life, even for Moses, is fighting against fighting. <laughs> fighting against this unity. Look, I don't need to tell you what's going on in the world. You live in the world also, and you know how difficult it is for people to get along. And the message, the message for us from, from this narrative is the notion of being more together and less separated. Because togetherness is holiness, and separateness is unholy. Now, it doesn't mean, as we've explored many times in this text, that Judaism or Kabbalah maintains that everyone should be monolithic, look exactly the same, no diversity. It's not what it means. It means let there be diversity, but the diversity should be unified. In other words, let's get along with our diversity. Let's respect the other's distinction. Let's appreciate the difference, and that way we actually bring it together. The truth is you don't have unity if you only have oneness, because it's not called unity, it's called oneness. So the notion of holiness being unity actually necessitates that there's diversity that's coming together. So the difference between Havai and Midian is not many versus one. It's just which direction the many are pointed. When they're pointed together, that's holy. When they're pointed away from each other, that's unholy. Make sense? So this takes us we're up to one of our final chapters, chapter 30 out of 32. Chapter 30, we talk about peace's secret weapon. What is the secret weapon for bringing people together? I mean, after all, don't we want a practical tool for healing? How do we heal? Well, you already know the answer. We already said the answer in the Talmud. And the answer was Torah. We said Torah creates peace above and Torah creates peace below. So Talmudically, I gave you an explanation. Well, when a person passes away, if they study Torah, then it's going to be an easy decision what happens. And also they're going to be peaceful down here. Well, that was touching on it, but we're going to reimagine what it means above and below using the four letters of God's name, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. Because in the four-letter name of God, there's two groupings of letters, Yud and He, which correspond to Chachma and Bina, and Vav and He, which correspond to the six emotive attributes and Malchut. And there's two unities, the higher unity and lower unity. In other words, the unity of Yud and He, and the unity of Vav and He, which on a very practical level means, in our own minds, are our creative ideas and our analytical ideas. In other words, are, are, are our ambitions and practical thoughts aligned with each other, or are they split apart? And on a lower level, are our emotions and actions also aligned with each other? Are you with me on this? Yeah. 
Know what I just said? In other words, Yud and Hey is Chachma Bina. Chachma is creative ideas. In other words, my daydreams. And Bina, the Hey, is practical, you know, practical thought. Are they aligned? Or do I have ambitions, but then reality, and they conflict and they collide, in which case I'm living two realities, what I want and what I have. Likewise, on the lower level of unity, the Vav and the He, there's higher unity and lower unity. The Vav and the He, Vav are the six emotions, and He is Malchut, which means practical, amongst many things, it also means practical action. So my emotions, what I want, right? So there's what I want intellectually and, and how I think practically intellectually, and then there's what I want emotionally, and then what I do practically. That's the vav and the hey. That's the lower level of unity. Are those two forces aligned, or are they different? Or do I have all four are different, and then I'm completely misaligned? So, what creates alignment? He says, Torah. Torah creates peace above the heavenly entourage, the yud and the hey, and it creates peace below in the vav and the hey. So, Torah brings peace. And the whole chapter 30 explores what is in the power of Torah to, to, to create peace. And the answer is because Torah, fundamentally, more than anything else, more than any other accolades, adjectives, descriptions that you can apply to Torah, the one truth about Torah that stands above everything else is that Torah is emet. You know what emet is? Emet is truth. Above everything else, Torah is True. And what is the definition of truth? Truth is consistency. So if something is true today but not true tomorrow, you know what that means? It's not true. Right? It's not, it's not true. If it's only true for a limited amount of time, then it's not true. Truth is consistency. That's why in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for truth is emet. It has the first letter aleph, the middle letter mem, and the last letter tough of the Hebrew letters, the 22 Hebrew letters. It is the first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter. That's how you write the word emet. By the way, we've said many times that Hebrew is not a random language. Like no one would do a deep dive analysis as to why a cat is spelled C-A-T. Like what's the Kabbalah of cat? That's not a thing in English. But in Hebrew, you bet that's a conversation. The word for truth is emet. It's the first letter, it's the middle letter, and it's the last letter. David says the truth is somewhere in the middle. But it's not only that. It's not only that. It's that truth is consistent. It's true in the beginning. It's true in the middle. And it's true at the end. The Talmud has a conversation about this in legal matters. And I think this is going to help round out the conversation. Because here's a, a legal, legalistic application. So in, in certain areas of Jewish law, you need to take water from a living source of water. Mayim chayim. For various rituals, you need living water. Living water means that it's connected to a source of live water, like a well or a spring that's connected to a source of living water. So you can have a stream, like a river, that's coming from a source that's considered to be living water, and that water is kosher for those, whatever those purposes are, it doesn't matter, but it's considered to be living waters. The Talmud discusses what happens if you have a stream, and, and, and you and I know about these streams, what happens if you have a stream that dries up every once in a while, right? Is it considered to be living waters when you have it? And the answer that the Talmud says is, if the, if the water dries up, if the stream dries up, once every, you know, often enough, then it's considered to be false water, 
and not true water, not, live, not truly living waters. Because if it dries up too much, it means that the source is not, is not, enough, is not alive enough. So if something is only true up until a certain point, okay, let me give you another example. I, I want to give practical examples so that it's not an abstract concept. Yeah, science, scientific uh, experimentation. You have a theory, now you want to prove it. You do experiments in a lab. Great. So it works the first hundred times. And then the hundred and first time, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah? Is it true or not? Is your theory, it's not true anymore. It doesn't work. If it only worked a certain amount of times and now it doesn't work, it means it doesn't work. Or if conditions change and it no longer works, that means that it's not 100% true. It's only true under certain conditions. Are you with me on that? It's like on lim limited conditions, it's true, which means it's not really true. It's conditionally true, but it's not unconditionally true. So you're talking about the difference between like absolute and relative. Absolute and relative truth. Yeah, so absolute truth is truth that always is true. It's not like under certain conditions, it's true. Torah is, and that's a very, thank you, that's a very good way to phrase it. Torah is not conditional truths. It's conditional truth. Torah is absolute truth. Why? Because it comes from God. And God is the ultimate unconditional Truth, absolute truth. God is absolutely true. God is, by definition, God is truth. God is, God was, God will be. Right? Past, present, and future. Like Aleph, Mem, and Tav, the three letters of Emmet. The first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter. God always was, God always is, God always will be. It's absolute truth. <laughs> with a capital A and a capital T. The Torah, God's Torah, is likewise absolute truth. No human book, no human wisdom is absolute truth. <clears throat> because everything is based on subjective understanding, subjective ideas, and is the product of a subjective time and place. Every book that's ever been written is coming from a certain context, by the way. This is the deeper significance of why the Torah was given in the middle of a desert, middle of a, of, of, a, of a desolate wilderness. The commentaries discuss this. Kabbalah discusses why was Torah given in a no man's land? So that you could never say that the Torah was, the pro was a product of a certain culture or society. What culture? Mount Sinai is in the middle of nowhere. There was no culture. Right? So you can't say that Torah is a product of a certain genre. What's the word? Milieu. How do you pronounce it? Milieu? Milieu. Milieu. What does it mean? What does that word mean, though? Middle. Huh? Middle. It means the middle? Yeah. No, it means... Environment. Yeah, environment. Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying... We'll it also means the middle. Okay, so the Torah, I'm trying to branch out into, uh, you know... Whatever, expanding my vocab right now. Um, so, so you know certain words like you only read, but you never use in normative conversation? First time you break it out, it's like, I don't know how this is going to go. Anyway, just bring you into my process here. So here's the bottom line. That no one should, <laughs> I'm just saying, that no one should say that Torah is the product of this culture, that language, that philosophy. No, there's nothing around. It's desolate. It's barren. Torah is coming from a place of absolute truth. So here's what happens when you introduce absolute truth into a conversation. Right? 
here's what happens. Y you might think, oh, that, that, that's a real like, conversation ender. It's like, imagine you're in a debate, like, let me drop some absolute truth on you. It's like, oh, now it's really going to get excited. Now it's really going to get contentious. But no, the understanding here of chapter 30 of our text is that when we study Torah, we're less antagonistic to the other. We're less abrasive. We're less um, territorial. We're less, I'm right, you're wrong. Right? The truth is with me, it's not with you. If someone studies Torah and becomes more aggressive, then they're doing it wrong. <laughs> they're straight up, they're doing it wrong. It says that elsewhere in the Talmud, the Torah was only given to bring peace into the world. If anyone takes Torah metaphorically and is using it as a club to bash someone over the head with, that's a problem. That's a distortion. That's the ultimate corruption of Torah. Taking something that's an instrument of peace and using it for, you know, violence. I don't mean literal violence. I mean, but, 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 but negativity and animosity and dissent and discord. Come on. What is that? That's not, uh, that's not kosher. So what's the point here? When we study Torah and we begin to perceive the truth of things, we begin to see the unifying truth of things. We see the truth of ourselves, the truth of the other. Of course we're going to get along. So throughout our conversations, throughout the last 12 months, 13 months, we've done a lot of talking about unity in the context of studying Kabbalah. And I would venture to say that after our sessions together on Sundays, you've probably felt inspired, I hope, I hope you felt inspired to get along with somebody a little bit more. And you should know that's because we were studying Torah and studying Kabbalah. Because as we discover in chapter 30, that's the key. Because the Torah breaks down all of the falsehoods that creates dissent and discord and reveal the truth that underlies us all, that we're all in this together and that we're all ultimately unified. And even when it comes to ideologies, when you look at an issue, and again, I'm not getting into specifics, but we've done this before. Four years ago, eight years ago, we actually had a course called Elections 2012. Anybody who, by raise of hand, did you, anyone join us? Elections 2016. We had a course. I believe some of you joined. Um, we talked about the issues of gun control and immigration and taxation. All of these, not all, but many, many, many hot button issues. And when I did those courses, I made a massive disclaimer at the beginning. This will not be a conversation that we typically have because we're going to be discussing these issues through the lens of Torah, through Torah's values. And at the end of the discussions, there's a clarity of like, oh, these are the issues, these are the considerations, these are the Torah's teachings on it. Seems like uh, solutions can be arrived, arrived at. When you fall back into human patterns of thought, Oftentimes, it goes to a very low place and a very contentious place. I don't want to make this about, I'm just using that as one example of it. But it's in every area of life. In every area of life, when there is discord and dis disharmony, the key to getting out of that is a Torah perspective. Because the Torah is the ultimate peace creator, as we saw in the Talmud. 
The Torah creates peace above and peace below. And it starts in our own heads and in our own hearts. Inner peace leads to outer peace. When we are at peace with ourselves, then we're more likely to be at peace with others. If you're in a bad mood, you're likely, you and I, if we're in a bad mood, we're more likely to take it out on someone else, on an innocent bystander. That's the way it works, right? When we're at peace with ourselves, in a happy place, we're more likely to bring someone else into that orbit of peace as well. Does that make sense? So what brings peace internally and externally, above and below, within ourselves and within the cosmic realm? It's Torah. It wasn't always there. Right. You know, the reason I don't like you because you did this, those are causes and conditions. Right. They weren't always Right. So what Adam is saying is that a, a, false a lot of times the reason why we don't like right. is because of something very conditional, yeah. very temporal, yeah. very not absolute. It's like, I don't like the way you looked at me. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the absolute truth of that person or the absolute truth of, of, of the situation. So... So what's the point? And I don't know, just looking at the time, I don't, we're not going to jump into the text of chapter 30. That we'll do next week, please God. Um, and by the way, we're back to Kabbalah and Coffee, please God, pretty consistently. So I know we, the last little while has been a little bit inconsistent because of the holidays and some other stuff, some simchas in, in, uh, in my family. But uh, we should be pretty consistent now for the next while. So next week we're going to jump into chapter 30. And we're going to continue this conversation inside the text and learn how... The Torah has the power to channel the infinite essence, the Ein Sof, into our beings. And when you have the introduction of Ein Sof, that is the ultimate unifier. Because all of the disunity comes when we take our eye off the bigger picture. But when you have the bigger picture right in front of you, we don't evolve into conflict into fighting. Like the example that we've given before, when the angels on their own might have different camps and different groups. Like I'm the angel Michal, you're Gavriel, you know, different angel of kindness, angel of, of judgment. But standing before God, Oses Shalom Ben Ramav, God makes peace amongst the heavenly angels. Because in the face of God, all the distinctions melt away and the core truth, the absolute truth, you're an angel of God and you're an angel of God. So what's, what's the fight about? All of that comes uh, in focus and therefore peace is made. And the same thing happens here. When we're aware of who we really are and who the other person really is, all of the fighting goes away. Yeah. What's the problem? We're not aware. What makes us aware? What brings that awareness into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds? It's one of the, one of the tools, one of the powerful tools is Torah study. Again, not studying Torah from an ego place because that could still lead to conflict. I studied Torah and you didn't. Aha! No, that's not, the, that's the, that's not studying Torah lishma, as we said before from the Talmud. But tor, stu, studying Torah from a place of humility and surrender to God's Torah is akin to an angel standing before God. And in that space, it's not me versus you. It's just us. So what's the bottom line? What's the takeaway from today? Let's continue to study Torah. And let's continue to put the bigger truth in front of us so that the petty stuff doesn't get in the way of our true calling, which is to be unified with each other. I wish you a week of peace, a week of love, a week of harmony 
and a week of unity. Not just a week. It shouldn't just last a week, by the way. It should last. But this week should be a week of peace and unity and harmony and love. And even when the world will tell you, right? The world will try to stir the pot. And I say the world. Whoever, whatever, stir the pot. You carry this teaching within you. You carry the truth within you. That you put Torah and God before everything else and find a way to connect and to honor the divine energy in the other person and in yourself and always seek peace and not discord and not disharmony. We need this now more than ever. And as we said before, this is the key to everything, the key to life. It's the greatest battle. It's Moses' final battle. It's the eternal battle. It's the battle for Havaya. It's the battle against Midian. And it's ultimate will bring Mashiach. Because the reason why we lost the temple is because we were fighting. So once we can heal that and stop fighting, we can have our temple back. We can have a better world. And who doesn't want a better world? All right, thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope you found it to be meaningful and uplifting and informative. Next week, again, next week, we will jump into the text. And um, hopefully, hopefully we will um, uh, extract even deeper lessons from, from the text. One second. Mariana and Alex, good to see you guys. Is it cold over there? We are, we, we are in the mountains. We're in the, in the Andes Mountains. Nice. Beautiful. It looks cold. Is it winter? Oh, it's winter by you guys, right? It's, it's a bit fresh. It's like, I nice. don't know, it's like 60 degrees. Oh, not bad. It's not so bad. Not bad, not bad at all. Beautiful. Wow. It looks, it looks gorgeous. It's a perfect place for Torah, for Mount Sinai, to happen. No kidding. <laughs> we've done it. We've done it with a wow. rabbi, our rabbi. Yeah. We've done it here several times. We bring the Torah over. Nice. So special Shabbaton. That's beautiful. Gorgeous. Amazing. And now we have some buildings here. It's very special to listen to your class here. I was so, so touched. Beautiful, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that gorgeous background. Um, you know, I've got uh, trees and a street behind me. <laughs> not, not as exotic. Yeah, no, no trees. Yeah, sure. No trees. Well, you got the mountains. You got the beauty of God's earth. By the way, that's another way to um, gain a little perspective, right? When we walk outside and we look at the beauty of the world around us, hopefully it could be also, um, listen, the, the, all the fighting happens when we get, it's a displacement. It's, 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 a, it's, it's what am I going to say? It's temporary insanity. It's, it's, it's losing focus on what's real and what's true. Torah helps ground us and bring us back to reality. Being outside, I mean, just looking at that beautiful landscape, it just, just snaps you into, like, what, what, what are we fighting about? How much time do we have? We have one plus. What are we doing? Wasting so much time and energy and conflict and discord. doesn't make sense. So, we need to get together and we need to look to help each other and not to harm each other. If the whole world looked to help each other, the world would be, imagine if people worked together and pooled their resources to actually solve problems instead of creating problems for each other. Oh, Ari, yeah. Ari, after, after the U.S. campaign next Tuesday, we'll bring you over. So try to appease the U.S. and then we'll bring you over to appease Chile. That's it. That's it. It's going to happen. We're going to do it. Once we solve the... Pr not even, you know, we shouldn't wait. We can do it simultaneously. 
right? We could do it simultaneously. I'd love to, uh, listen, I'd love to broadcast a class from, uh, from such a background. And not like because a uh, fake screen back here, but we'll, we'll, we can talk about that. It'd be a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure. Class. Pleasure, I thank you. And when, when I, I arrived here and I saw the mountains, I cried because I said, that's so true. Like, like it's so real. Like, like it's God. Everything, of, yeah. like the creation is God. And, and yeah, it's what a beautiful class. Thank you. Thank you. Much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being here. Um, and thank you all for being here. Let's make it a week of positivity, of Torah, of, of beauty, and not getting stuck in the negativity. All right, shalom, everybody. We'll see you all very soon. Take bye, care. Bye, bye everyone. Bye. Take care. Where are your classes on? What's the...